and so he shows me this whole story and then now we're back into the room and he's on his deathbed and he says i i i knew from that that i was saved for some purpose but i didn't know what the purpose was and now i know what the purpose was and i was like oh okay well, what's the purpose and he said well it's to tell you to become a psychedelic therapist and to keep trying to bring back psychedelic research this is field tripping a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Rick Doblin to the podcast. Rick is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, commonly referred to as MAPS. Founded in 1986, MAPS is a nonprofit research and educational organization that develops medical, legal, and cultural contexts for people to benefit from the careful uses of psychedelics and cannabis. In essence, MAPS helps scientists design, fund, and obtain FDA regulatory approval for studies on the safety and effectiveness of a number of controlled substances, including MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin, to treat PTSD, anxiety, and depression. MAPS is also conducting clinical trials under the guidance and regulations of the FDA and are in collaboration with federal regulators, including the DEA. Recently, their psychedelic research fundraising campaign raised $30 million in donations to prepare MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for Phase 3 FDA approval, which are conducted through MAPS in Israel, Canada, and the USA. Congratulations, Rick, on all your amazing accomplishments, and thank you for your dedicated commitment to psychedelics. I hope you know how important and appreciated you truly are by the community. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Field Tripping. Rick, you and I had a conversation a, a week or two ago, and I think we really just started mm -hmm. by talking about how we both got to be in the places that we are right now. And I found that so inspiring and fascinating and moving that I would really love uh, to hear that story again, to be quite honest. And I think many of the people who would listen to uh, to listen to our podcast would, would love to hear it. If you wouldn't mind, tell us, uh, you know, how you got into psychedelics, how you got inspired to create maps and, and push against, truthfully, all odds uh, in almost all respects to get to where we are right now, which is really on the cusp of a new psychedelic renaissance with MAPS and MDMA being used for the treatment of PTSD as probably the first legal access uh, to a psychedelic we're going to see in the modern context. So how I got into it was I grew up in a family that was very politically attuned and also very much Jewish and influenced by uh, the Holocaust and the state of Israel. My great, great grandmother moved to Palestine in 1904 in order to die and be buried on the Mount of Olives because once the Messiah comes, the Messiah is supposed to walk out of a certain gate of the walls of Jerusalem and then the uh, Mount of Olives is right across there. So those are the people that are first supposed to be resurrected and then um, died in 1907. And my great-grandparents moved to Israel, to Palestine in 23, built a house in Tel Aviv that's now a historical site on Rothschild Boulevard. And so I was born in 53. Uh, you know, I had, I had relatives that 
you know, fought in the uh, War of Independence in 48 in Israel and had quite a lot of relatives in Israel. And so as a result, I was educated about the Holocaust from a very young age. Mm -hmm. And that's what really influenced me in an incredibly profound way. I grew up in Chicago. And then when I was about three or so, we moved to a place called Skokie, which was um, many people or some people may know about it. Uh, it's sort of a famous situation where the uh, Nazis wanted to uh, or neo-Nazis wanted to march through Skokie because it was mostly Jewish with a lot of Holocaust survivors. And the ACLU defended uh, the Nazis, the neo-Nazis right to march. But where I was, I thought everybody was Jewish. I thought the whole world was Jewish. Um, it, it took it took me a while. It, it was a big story when I was six that my parents explained to me that uh, not only was our neighborhood was Jewish, but not only was not the whole world Jewish, but they were this tiny fraction of one percent. And yeah, and so that just made me realize uh, the sense of vulnerability and the sense of the Holocaust. And so I was born, I would say with every possible privilege and advantage. So I was born in 53 at the time of American uh, strength. You know, we had uh, won World War II. Um, I was Jewish and I was, uh, you know, educated about the chosen people. I, I didn't quite know enough at that time to realize we're all chosen, <laughs> but, um, but I sort of bought into that. Also, I was white. Um, also, I was the firstborn male child. And also my father was a doctor. My grandparents had been successful business people. And so we were, um, we were well off. I just had this sense of possibility. And at the same time, I was realizing that no matter how successful we might be in America or how much I could count on food and shelter for the rest of my life, that, that you could be, um, I was vulnerable to that kind of hatred and prejudice uh, that caused the Holocaust. And, and so that just made me start thinking about deeper threats uh, to my survival. And also, it, it, I really felt this other part is that on my great-grandparents' side, uh, uh, around 1880s, they came over from, uh, from Russia. And then my other uh, grandparents, uh, one of them uh, came in 1920 from Poland. So it's a story of immigration, of immigrants, and then the, the American dream, and then doing well, and then their ability to give uh, great-grandchildren or grandchildren um, this support to really do whatever we wanted to do, uh, knowing that our basic survival was taken care of. So I just started feeling like this was, you know, the, the threat from the Holocaust was something that I had to acknowledge and address. Then as I was growing up, I did believe all of the anti-psychedelic propaganda. I thought okay. that if you took LSD about six times, you were legally insane, that it would hurt your chromosomes. Uh, you know, my right. dad was a doctor, as I said, but uh, he didn't drink. My parents didn't really drink. They didn't smoke. Um, so it was kind of a non-drug household that I grew up in. And so there was no contrary information coming to me. Um, and, you know, my dad being a doctor, he also realized that a lot of what he learned in medical school, which he went to in the 50s, was outdated. And so we had all these, you know, drugs that uh, pharma companies had given him in a big uh, drawer. And, and his basic thought was, don't take any of them. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and just You'll get better on your own. So this, this whole anti-drug thing I bought. 
So right. they got, and then what really started happening for me was uh, the confrontation with Vietnam. As I started uh, getting older and, and started recognizing that I was going to be um, involved in the draft for Vietnam, I started thinking about how to protest. Um, and I started studying nonviolent resistance. So I was reading a lot of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Thoreau, Tolstoy, a lot of theoreticians about nonviolence. And right. um, I realized that with the draft, that, that we participate in systems of oppression voluntarily a lot. You know, we were sort of lulled into it. And, and I felt that the best strategy for um, being a draft resistor was that I, I wasn't a conscientious objector because in order to be a conscientious objector, you have to be against um, all wars. You have to be a pacifist. And I right. felt like certain wars are important, wars of defense, uh, they're necessary. Um, so I wasn't a conscientious objector, and I felt the best thing to do was to just not register, not send in the first postcard to register, uh, drain the system of the most energy, and then have them come after me and put me in jail. So that was my strategy. And I anticipated, you, you know, you think that the government knows everything. You know, I had a social security number, I was paying taxes, I was in high school, um, you know, I thought I'd be caught. I think you referred to yourself as, what was it, like a conscientious criminal or something like that? Well, oh, uh, well a counterculture drug-using criminal. Oh, uh, there we go. Right. Y yes. Yeah. 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 That, that came a tiny bit later. Uh, okay. At this point, I was a counterculture criminal, but I wasn't a drug user. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so the, yeah, I didn't quite add that for, for a little bit, but I was planning to be a draft resistor and go to jail. My parents were sympathetic, but they said, you're never going to be able to be a doctor. You're never going to be able to be a lawyer. You're going to never be able to do anything that requires license because you're going to be a felon. And I was like, okay, I just have to accept that. And so that also made me think, what, what am I going to do with my time? Did you understand the gravity of that dis decision? Like in, with, with the benefit of 30, 40 years later, like, did you really, if, with the benefit of time now, would you have made a decision? Um, I think I would have, uh, but I do think you're right in that I didn't fully understand the consequences of it. You know, I, when you see now the more and more um, the consequences of mass incarceration from the drug war and what it means for people to have a felony conviction and how difficult it is for them to find housing, to find jobs, to find education, to get loans, all, all sorts of things. Once you're a felon, it's, it's, I, I didn't really fully realize that. Um, but, but I did have that sense of security in a sense from my family that they would make sure I would survive. So all of that is just to say that, uh, that I was thinking more and more about psychological factors, that this was, um, a lot of these wars or prejudices or genocide or, you know, blowing up the world with nuclear weapons, it, it didn't seem rational or sensible. It felt that people's fears and anxieties were getting the better of them. And, and so that just made me think more and more about psychology. And I was taking Russian in order to learn about uh, the other. I actually spent the summer after my junior year of high school in, in Russia. And my parents, this is where my underground career started, actually, um, on thanks to my parents, because they sent me to Russia to study Russian. I'd already studied it for a couple of years in high school, but they gave me prayer books to bring to the guys in the synagogue because prayer books were illegal in Russia. Right. And so they packed in my luggage a bunch of prayer books to, you know, somehow or other I should find the synagogue and find guys and give them the prayer books. And 
all of this is just to say, in my Russian class, um, this fellow gave me this book to read, and I loved it. I loved it. And I gave it back to him, and he said, do you realize that some of this book was written under the influence of LSD? Hmm. And I was like, that's impossible. That, that's not possible. LSD is hallucinations. It, it takes you away from reality. You can't produce anything great. You're disoriented. There's nothing good come from LSD. And he, he insisted that, that it was true, that this book was written partially under the influence of LSD. And I'm, I'm like, that's no way. And so I, I checked into it and it turned out he was right. It was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And parts of it were written under the inf influence of LSD. So that was the crack in, in the facade of, you know, drugs are all bad. I was very interested in um, finding my own way. And so I, I went to an experimental college, New College, which is now the um, Honors College of the State of Florida in Sarasota, Florida. When I went to it as a private college, and I just was so lucky I ended up there. Now, this is 1971 that I start college. And while I'm in college, um, th there's two things that they didn't put in the brochure. It was a small school, no grades, written evaluations, students' curiosity was the most important thing, off-campus study, independent pro reading projects, everything was great. But what they didn't put in the brochure is that they had all-night parties till sunrise with psychedelics. And, and it was designed by I.M. Pei, the famous architect, the, yeah. the dorms were. And in the middle of it was this palm court, and we would have these palm court parties that would be epic parties, you know, with lots of people tripping. But also they had a lot of students that were tripping um, for personal growth, for spiritual inspiration. So you had this kind of party cele group celebration and you had this individual exploration. And that, that was great. That was a great thing for me to discover that that was going on at the school. The other thing that was um, very influential for me was that at the swimming pool, which this, there was a Jung teacher uh, at New College who had actually studied with Jung. And it was a small school. We didn't have a lot of facilities. Her husband was quite wealthy, and they donated this big Olympic-sized swimming pool with a big deck around it, fence all around it. And somehow or other, it had evolved into a nudist colony. <laughs> and here I was, this super shy guy from high school, barely could talk to a girl. And, and now, you know, I'm in the middle of a nudist colony. Um, and the I psychedelic just, parties happening across the street. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in the morning after the sunrise from all these night parties, we'd go swimming in the pool and felt like this oasis of sanity. And so in this oasis of sanity with some, with the energies of drugs and sex and things brought up from the underground into the open so that we could deal with them better. They weren't repressed. We could, you know, there's still issues for sure, but at the same time, um, you know, they, they were sort of up, up there for us to address and, and to wrestle with. Um, that's where I started really getting into psychedelics. And I had a series of difficult experiences because I was way up in my head. I wasn't very emotional. At that time, an LSD experience was 250 micrograms. So it was um, four times or so, three or four times what current doses are for a yeah. blotter. And so it was existential. That's what taking um, just one hit of LSD was like. You know, there'd be periods of right. time where you're like, who am I? <laughs> where am I? And, and so I had intimations of connection beyond ego, intimations of a deeper reality, intimations of all the energies in your mind, of all the evolutionary progress that it's taken to get here. It, it was just so 
remarkable, but at the same time, it was emotionally very difficult. This letting go and being open, and you know, trust, let go, open is what、uh, Bill Richards has, who's led a lot of the therapy training programs for、um, Usona and Compass to deal with.、Uh, so it's time, trust, let go, be open,、um, right. and that was very hard for me to do. And、yeah. I, I had、uh, experiences with both、um, LSD and mescaline.、Um, somebody came by campus with a half a pound of mescaline, and, and so、um, I decided to buy it all. <laughs> and,、um, friends and I then distributed it, and we all did mesc. So, so my early training is、uh, LSD and mescaline. I actually love mescaline a lot. I'll say mescaline is the most important psychedelic that's not being studied, although it's、right. just starting to be studied a bit. But my experiences were really difficult,、um, and I went to the guidance counselor. At some point, I was like, "I, I need help. I, I just don't, you know, know how to deal with this. I'm getting less interested in my studies." Also, this was now、uh, 1971 and then 1972, so it was after the backlash against the psychedelics, which、right. really culminated in 1970. With the Controlled Substances Act and Nixon declaring a war on drugs, and so the '60s had sort of crashed and burned, you could say, and、yeah. the war was still going, and there was this sense that there was a lot of、um, external pressure for sure, but also some internal dynamics that from some of the advocates that could have been、uh, they could have advocated more successfully. So there was this sort of inner、um, exploration, like what did we do wrong? How could we do this better? And so. From that, I got less and less interested in my classes, and more and more interested in this kind of spiritual evolution, emotional evolution, that I felt was necessary. And so、um, I went to the guidance counselor, and I said,、uh, "Help me with my trips." And the guidance counselor took me seriously、um, and said, "This is something important. What you're doing." And he gave me a book to read. And to show you how lucky I, I am. Um, he gave me a book by Stan Groff called "Realms of the Human Unconscious: Observations from LSD Research." Right now, this was 1972, and the book didn't even get published till 1975. Oh,、so、interesting! My guidance counselor had a manuscript copy, and he was in touch with Stan. <laughs> and and so I read this book, and that's really what pulled it all together for me because. What Stan was doing was、um, describing research that had been shut down, but that was incredibly promising, and he was describing realms of the human unconscious. He was mapping the mind and moving into、um, mystical, spiritual, Jungian archetypal realms, as well as birth trauma and a lot of、uh, issues about birth, as well as all sorts of psychodynamic issues、uh, from birth. But it was had this kind of spiritual. Element to it, but the main frame of it was science. I'm very、um, distrustful of you know religious ideology. You know, a good example of it is the, the metaphors of a volcano. You know, the spiritual inspiration comes to these founders of religions. It's like the volcanic explosions, and it's uh, uh, over time it gets hardened into rock, though, and people are just、uh, believe it like literally true, and that it's not、right. metaphorical, it's not fluid, and. So there's just so much in that way that that's、uh, detrimental or dangerous about religion. But、um, th- this kind of、uh, scientific frame over this、uh, spiritual. But then the most important part of all for me was the therapy, the reality check of could we、um, use this to help people? And so all of this builds up to this decision for me that this area, psychedelics, is what I want to work on for my life, and because. 
the way Stan talked about the spiritual aspect of it, it's about this unit of mystical experience where we feel connected to um, everything, to nature, to history, to evolution, that we're part of something big. And this is, you could say, quantum physics in that sense, that we're not separate objects. We're all together in certain ways. Right. Um, or both were wave and particle. We're, we're both. We're both individuals distinct within um, a circumscribed life and death. And at the same time, we're part of this eternal, enormous, you know, mega billion year, whatever, uh, universe. Right. Right. Yeah. So it was this political dimensions that really made me decide to commit my life to psychedelics because I felt like here is the antidote to genocide and to mass murder and to fundamentalism is that if you can feel this connection beyond your religion, beyond your race, beyond your language, beyond your gender, that we're part of this one unified field of energy that if you feel that, then it will be more difficult to dehumanize others, to um, be racist, to be prejudiced. Uh, and that also in the therapeutic aspect, we can work through our traumas. We don't have to carry these multi-generational traumas down through hundreds and thousands of years. Um, we, we can kind of move through them. We can break old patterns. We can become more um, spiritual. And from that, we can build a new base of um, humanity's mental health. And so that, that's where MAPS's idea is mass mental health. That's what we're really working towards. And we're working towards it with uh, medicalization through psychedelic drug development, but also through drug policy reform. So it was at 18 years old, though, reading Stan's book that I thought, I have this luxury of uh, not starving and having a place to stay from my parents. And this is a strategy of helping people to have these experiences that I think can really make a contribution to a, a better world. And also I can use psychedelics for my own uh, evolution, my own therapy. And so I wrote a letter to Stan Groff and to my utter shock, Stan wrote me back. <laughs> I'm just this, you know, 18 year old kid confused with psychedelics and Stan's this, uh, you know, MD PhD researcher at Johns Hopkins, one of the leading psychedelic researchers in the world. And um, But he wrote me back, he encouraged me, and he said that he was giving a workshop that summer. That was really the genesis for me of focusing my life on psychedelics, was that uh, reading Stan, and, and you know, I'm in touch with him uh, still today. He's 89 years old. Um, wow. We've just published his book, Way of the Psychonaut, which uh, is the summary of his uh, life's work. So Stan has been my mentor, and Stan has mentored a lot of the people involved in the psychedelic uh, renaissance, um, Charlie Grove, um, Michael Mithofer. We, we, we've studied with Stan holotropic breathwork. Uh, Bill Richards worked with Stan at Johns Hopkins uh, back in the uh, late 60s, 70s. And so I feel so lucky that now that I'm um, 66, and actually next month, meaning in November, I'll be 67, that the ideas that I had when I was 18 still makes sense to me now. And the, the one thing I'll, I'll add to this is that in my early 20s, um, after I had decided this, I had a pivotal dream that explains my um, persistence in this area. And the dream was, um, I think many people may have seen um, 2001 Space Odyssey, that movie. It's kind of yeah. classic psychedelic. And in the end of it, there's uh, the astronaut is on his dying bed uh, his deathbed in all of a white room. He's in the middle. This is before the birth of this star child. 
which which I think is a metaphor for humanity's uh, evolving consciousness mm-hmm. uh, into this sort of uh, understanding of our place in the universe. And so I'm in this room, and this is the dream now. I'm in this room. There's this guy dying on this bed. It's all white room, and he says. That he was a survivor of the Holocaust, and that he was miraculously saved from death, and he knew that he was saved for a purpose, but he wasn't sure the purpose, what the purpose was. And he said, "Let me show you what happened." And so then, all of a sudden, now we're on the outskirts of a town. Uh, I don't know exactly where, but I think in Poland. And there's thousands and thousands of Jews that are lined up in front of a, a, a mass grave, and then they're all machine gunned and、uh, buried, and not all of them are dead, you know, but they're buried alive. And so then I'm in the ground, buried with this guy, and then it becomes a bit of a Jesus story in that he's buried for three days, and then then he kind of he's knocked out by the bullets he's shot and stuff, and but he he sort of comes back while he's alive, and he manages to dig himself out of. The grave and come up to the surface, and because it was the edge of town, there's no Nazis there anyway. And he runs into the forest, and he meets the partisans, and he, you know, works as a soldier till the end of the war. And so he shows me this whole story, and then now we're back into the room, and he's on his deathbed, and he says, "I I I knew from that that I was saved for some purpose, but I didn't know what the purpose was, and now I know what the purpose was." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, what's the purpose?" And he said, "Well, it's to tell you." To become a psychedelic therapist, and to keep trying to bring back psychedelic research—that's an intense dream. Yeah. Then I'm sitting there and I'm thinking in my own head, still in the dream. I'm thinking, I've already decided to do this. This is what I want to do. So I can, in good faith, accept this, and tell him I will do that, and then he can die in peace. I tell him I will do that, and then he dies. And then I, I walk out of the room, and I was reading a lot of Herman Hesse at the time, and Siddhartha, and the Journey to the East, a lot of things like that. And so then I walk out of this room, and all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a forest, and there's a river, and I walk down, and I sit next to the river, and I'm just watching the river go by. And after a few minutes, I notice that there's a small boy sitting there watching the river with me. And then I I take notice of him, and then I say, "Oh, I'm friends with him. I'm friends with his father. His father was a carpenter who helped、uh, build my house. More importantly, though, at a particular time, I had a large stash of LSD, and I was kind of worried I might be busted. So I asked his father if he would store my LSD stash at his farm. And once I connected boy to, oh, he's connected to my LSD, it all made sense. And then I woke up. So I I, I felt like. The response to the Holocaust, the response to the U.S. and Russia all blowing up the whole world, is this sense of connection and also the psychological theoretic evolution. If I were to give up, I would be betraying all those、uh, six million that were killed in the Holocaust of Jews and so many other people died in that war. So that that's why whatever the DEA did or whatever obstacles from the FDA didn't really matter. That's quite the、uh, burden to assume, you know. I, you know, you don't present as as a martyr, right? I mean, I'm willing to、um, sacrifice, but no, I'm I'm not、um, interested in being a martyr. I mean, I was willing to go to jail for the protests of the Vietnam War. Have not just this whole, you know, thousands of years of people trying to kill the Jews, but but also this multi generational history of family members running away from. 
repression and anti-Semitism in Russia and in Poland, finding a new home in America, living the American dream, and then multiple generations down, being charged to really look at uh, deeper threats. And so I I like to say that I'm um, pampered, but not spoiled. (laughs) (laughs) It's been said that our great human adventure is the evolution of consciousness. We are in this life to enlarge the soul, liberate the spirit, and light up the brain. It has also been said that humanity has advanced when it has advanced, not because it has been sober, responsible, and cautious, but because it has been playful, rebellious, and immature. And that's why I love the story of Rick's introduction to psychedelics. Not only is it a delightful and charming story, it also reminds me about one of the big things I'm trying to keep alive in the current psychedelic renaissance that it should not just be about important but somber treatments for mental health conditions or predefined paths to healing or optimization or wholeness. It should also be about lighting up the spirit and exploring our consciousness for no other reason than, in the words of Dr. Seuss, these things are fun and fun is good. In the end, adults in this modern Western experiment of society seem always to be on a path to somewhere. And sometimes it's important to stop and be rebellious for no other reason than to stop and be rebellious. No, I'm, I'm not interested in martyrdom, but I, but I was interested in meaning and purpose. And, and, and I would say also just from a fundraising perspective, MAPS has raised over $100 million now in our history. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, now that, that's over 34 years. The big challenge is going to be coming ahead where we need to raise another $30 million to bring MDMA PTSD to Europe and around the world, and then we may need to raise another, you know, fifty million or so for other indications for MDMA. And it'll be challenging because of your work, actually. And Compass, there's so many investment opportunities for people. And now people are saying, "Why should I bother donating? You know, right. we can achieve some of the same things by investing." So I, I think that we will show that that we will do things differently. We are sympathetic with your efforts. We're sympathetic with Compass. We, we think there's a, a, an important need for the for-profit community. The need is great. Um, for-profit doesn't have to be bad. But at the same time, we think that this nonprofit public benefit corporation mix that we have makes a lot of sense, and in particular for health. And, and I'll, I'll just say, since uh, Ronan, you're, in, you're in Canada, that uh, national healthcare systems, like in Canada, like in Europe, make a lot of sense. And in America, healthcare is warped by the profit motive. I mean, we just have per capita expenses are greater than any other country in the world by substantial margin, but our outcomes are not that good compared to the outcomes in the rest of the world. And that's because so much of the money for healthcare is profit that's taken off the top and isn't directly related to patient care. So I I think that's going to be our challenge is demonstrating that the nonprofit model has a role to play. What what we're saying is we have made a lot of public value. So that's part of our story is for $100 million, who knows what MAPS is worth on the market if we were to capitalize it, but but certainly we've spent the donor's money well. That's the point. We've built public value and we are um, leading the way through the FDA, through the regulatory systems, and uh, we're sort of struggling to really... um, work with FDA on some things that I think will have a big impact on a field trip, on Compass. It's about the credentialing of the therapists. Right. You know, for a while, the, the FDA was wanting the, um, for us, because we came first, they listened to us. 
And so we have a two-person therapy team. One is a licensed therapist. The other can be a student. doesn't have to have a license. Then Compass and USONA come along with psilocybin. FDA starts to realize that they might actually um, have to approve some of these drugs. <laughs> that they could actually work. And then you know, they're, they're concerned, are they going to be considered to be too lax what the problems are? So then they started saying they want uh, MD-PhD to be the lead therapist. And they want a doctor on site. We didn't even have to have a doctor on site, which right. we have to have a doctor do the initial screening, but there's no need to have a doctor on site. You have a doctor on call, it's fine. And so we got these agreements in a legally binding way, what's called a special protocol assessment process that we went to after FDA said we could go to phase three. But then along comes Compass and USONA and FDA tightens things up um, and they want doctor on site and MD, PhD for the lead person. And that just is increasing the cost. It's unnecessary. It's not practical. So um, we're fighting that out. And uh, right. we're going to spend somewhere like $350,000 or more on our lawyers who are experts in disputes with FDA. But, but in the end, I think um, we've got a reasonable case. And I think senior management sees that the, um, some of these things that the Division on Psychiatry Products is doing is um, uh, not based on the data. So in any case, that, that's our kind of situation now. Have you spoken to Compass and, and USONA uh, about that? Because, oh, yeah. you know, I could, see, I could see the mixed messages. On the one hand, you know, if you're looking at it from a purely for-profit enterprise, you want the highest barriers to entry from people coming along and trying to compete with you. On the other hand, lowering the barriers to entry means it's probably easier to get what you want to get done, done. So I'm curious to know what their perspectives have been. I think that the issue is going to be, particularly in Europe and also in Canada and elsewhere, is how do we get these things covered by national health care? You know, because this is more expensive initially than just giving people some pills. And it's more effective, though. So you, we have to demonstrate that um, over time that the insurance companies will, it's cost effective. Um, Plus One, which is an open science journal, just accepted a paper of ours on the cost effectiveness study of our MDMA PTSD treatment based on our phase two data. But I think, so I think that the cost of the barriers to entry, the MD PhD, I don't think that USUN or Compass really wants them. I think they felt that they had to agree in order to get their research project going. Right. That they didn't, you know, and I think that they are um, sympathetic with our efforts. So, you know, one part of what we're doing because we are a nonprofit is that we feel like we're a public utility, like a, your water company or your power company, but for psychedelic data and psychedelic regulatory relationships. So we feel like we should share this with everybody, profit, nonprofit, um, anybody who's interested, um, governments around the world. That's the biggest, one of the biggest challenges with, with psychedelic therapies is you're right. They are more than just pills. They're incredibly impactful based on the research that, you know, you've certainly pioneered and they have the capacity to help millions, if not billions of people. But because they involve the, the time of medical professionals, uh, use that term broadly, yeah. it becomes expensive and, and time consuming. And, and finding the solution to that quandary is, is certainly something that we're, is central to our you know, thesis and field trip. And I'm sure something that you, you wrestle with often as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the other logical reason for collaborations is that, um, you know, from what I understand, you're working initially on uh, ketamine clinics. Correct. And yeah. that, that's what's legally available. But what we find is that a lot of the ketamine clinics, uh, some of them, I would say, are 
um, less effective and less responsible than others. And those are the ones that just offer ketamine without any kind of psychological support. Yep. When you combine, and that's the way it was approved. Uh, you know, S-ketamine was approved for depression without any psychological support. It just has a pharmacological treatment like another version of electroconvulsive therapy or something that uh, shakes up your brain and, you know, that's, it doesn't matter the content. And then you'll come to a new organization, it'll broke a pattern of depression. And so I think that a lot of the, um, you know, anesthesiologists that are offering ketamine therapy don't understand psychodynamics and they just see it as a money-making thing. And, and also they're helping some people, which is good. But I think people uh, get better help when it's combined with therapy and they need less ketamine sessions. And it's more durable because you're teaching them the integration process. But what that means is that the therapists who are offering ketamine are interested in MDMA and also psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So the clinics that you're setting up will eventually become psychedelic clinics, not just ketamine clinics. Absolutely. You know, all the people that we're training for MDMA, they want to learn how to work with ketamine. They want to learn how to be cross-trained with psilocybin. What if DMT comes along the road? They want to be trained with that as well. So what we're talking about is networks of psychedelic clinics, thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics throughout the world, tens and twenties of thousands of therapists doing this work and millions mm -hmm. and millions of patients. And the thing that also though for us, and, and this is I, I'd say a bit of a difference between us and, and the for-profit companies is that we are willing and eager to get involved in uh, drug policy reform and to try to provide access to people to these drugs without having to buy it from us. Right. Meaning that it's a fundamental human right to explore your consciousness, that the drug war is counterproductive, racist, and really has um, never been focused on reducing drug abuse. It's always been ulterior motives and we need to just get away with it. Doesn't mean there's gonna be no problems with drugs, but that we want mass mental health. That, that's where, um, and then if we were to get into this uh, discussion, yeah, about my uh, ketamine and, and DMT trip, that, that's where I kind of solidified this mass mental health. But for us, in any case, that means working on drug policy reform, trying to help people have these experiences, trying to train people in peer support. I think that there will be more than enough people still coming to the clinics, still wanting the therapeutic setting. But I think politically, the concern has been by some of the researchers and some of the for-profit companies that um, this gets you on the wrong side of policymakers. Right. Um, but we have not seen that to be the case. So we've been outspoken since uh, I started MAPS in 86 as both drug policy reform and um, medicine, and they're completely separate. So you need a whole set of uh, evidence and data and proof to make something into a medicine. It's a different set of arguments for policy change. Um, but what we found is that it actually, um, they're mutually supportive despite people's fears. And, and to this, I'll say that a friend of mine was the uh, legislative director in Washington, D.C. for the uh, head of the Black Congressional Caucus. I was asking him, what do you think about this strategy? We're actually working on drug policy reform and also on research. And a lot of people criticize us for that. And so he, he said that in the civil rights era, that Martin Luther King was sort of the nonviolent resistance person. And he said that Malcolm X was a little bit more um, aggressive, you could say. And so he said that what he observed in that is that the kind of advocacy that Malcolm X did, it made Martin Luther King more acceptable. When there's somebody that's sort of going for a bigger change, 
it pulls the center. The work for drug policy reform actually legitimizes the work for research. And the work on the research changes people's attitudes and opens doors in drug policy reform. And we actually heard from, um, this was um, one of the leaders of the, one of the for-profit companies had a meeting with some of the leaders of the FDA. And this is where our strategy was confirmed. The FDA was, they were, they were talking about the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative, which is uh, gonna, on the ballot to try to make uh, psilocybin available. Um, in a state legal way, not just to patients, but to people who are um, personal growth in some kind of licensed therapists and, and supporters, things like that. Um, and so the FDA said that they were worried about that, but their worry was they compared it to medical marijuana. And they said, um, and, and you'll be sympathetic <laughs> with this, Ronan. They said that sure. all of what's happened with medical marijuana was at the state level and it bypassed the FDA. And yep. so because people could sell marijuana to patients without having to do the research, and the FDA missed this part, but there, there is this uh, monopoly that the uh, DEA has sustained since 1968. There's only one company that has a legal license to grow marijuana in the United States, and they yep. only grow under contract to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and they can only grow for research, and it can't be used commercially, so it's not good for phase three. We're still trying to break that monopoly. We've been working on that um, right now for the last 20 years, and I think we're yep. getting a little bit closer. We're about to sue the Attorney General and the DEA next week to try to make them decide on all these applications. But, but in any case, FDA said that they were worried that this Oregon psilocybin initiative would take away people's interest in doing the research because they right. wanted to see the research. And, and so what that means is they want to see the research. They're not going to shut down the research because Oregon is going to have this initiative or, you know, Denver and now Ann Arbor and Oakland have had these, uh, decriminalize nature initiatives to decriminalize plant medicine. So in any case, we're in good shape. I think that that's our bigger mission. No, absolutely. And listen, I think our philosophy within Field Trip is very much aligned with uh, your perspective. You know, um, we aren't so active in terms of our drug policy reform efforts, but we are openly supportive of the efforts in Oregon. Um, to to see that happen it is a counterbalance and i hear your point you know i, I don't think the research is going to stop i think you know the research oh. with cannabis for instance is just picking up you know and on a number of different clinical settings and there's still incredible amounts of opportunity for innovation around cannabis and cannabinoids that would reward for-profit you know efforts yeah. while still not limiting the the sort of state-by-state -state rollout or the federal legalization of cannabis in canada as well so i think those objectives can be aligned but the balance does have to be struck. Yeah. So maybe if you could say a moment about some of the comments that, that people have called me <laughs> recently that, that you made that, that seem to indicate that, you know, underground providers are um, narcissistic and they're not trustworthy because they're breaking the law. And I'm happy to go into that. And if that's the way it came across, I do apologize. That's not the intent at all. It My comment was that people who are willing to break the law and undertake, you know, illegal activities in pursuit of an effort, and this is not everybody, but you have to have a belief and a tolerance and uh, for risk uh, and an attitude that is 
in many ways can be irrational and, and defying self-preservation. And undoubtedly, when you're that committed to a certain path and a certain passion, you're going to see probably, you know, some of those people have narcissistic tendencies, that they're going to see themselves with God complexes, because I think it's just a, a reflection of choice of, of the path. But that doesn't mean everybody. That does certainly, you know, within the psychedelic community, it's it's true about all communities as well. But in my mind, there has to be something to set be said that if you're willing to do something overtly illegal in pursuit of a cause, you know, it reflects something about your personality. Um, well, there, there, let me tell you, well, I don't know about that. So here, here's, um, so Martin Luther King, as I mentioned, um, Martin Luther King's mentor, Reverend Howard Thurman, was the minister for the Good Friday experiment. Right. Uh, Martin Luther King got a PhD at Boston University. Reverend Howard Thurman had studied with Gandhi and had studied with um, other aspects uh, advocates of nonviolence. And he was sort of the hidden um, mentor for Martin Luther King and others advocating the nonviolent resistance for the civil rights movement. And so in front of Marsh Chapel in Boston University, where Martin Luther King got his PhD, where the Good Friday experiment took place, there's a, a statue for Martin Luther King. And there's a quote on the side of it that relates to what you just said. And the quote says that, um, and I, I'm sure I'll mangle it a little bit, but the, the gist sure. of it is that Somebody who sees a law that they think is unjust and is willing to violate it and suffer the consequences in order to educate others about the injustice of the law actually has the highest respect for the law. I totally agree. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big advocate of like what Tom Robbins says, where he says like at some point in your life, you have to decide between what is legal, what is merely legal, what is right and what is merely legal. You know, yeah. that makes you metaphysically on the run. The, America is full of metaphysical outlaws. And I 100% agree with that. Don't okay, get me wrong. Great, great, I, I think that okay. the vast majority of people specifically within the psychedelic sphere, you know, when they undertake this work, you know, in light of the consequences, in light of the risks, most of them are doing it from a, an altruistic, well-considered, thoughtful uh, pursuit. It, it's just that uh, when when someone takes that level of passion, especially uh, when it may be illegal, there's going to be a subset of those people who are going to reflect narcissistic personalities. But it's also true about for-profit. It's not specifically limited to uh, only underground providers or anything along those lines. Well, I was going to say, here's guy. I'm going to totally agree with you. There's a lot of the people that work in psychedelics. They're like, where's all the ego dissolution? <laughs> exactly. Know? We have a lot of egotistical people who, you know, do you can get this ego inflation, uh, which is the opposite. So, you know, we, we do see that a fair amount. And so, just taking psychedelics doesn't guarantee uh, ego dissolution or uh, humbleness or you know, yeah, and I think that there can be this sense that, uh, you know, you're up against the world and you're right and everybody else is wrong and, you know, you're, yeah, so I, I think there is some of that uh, uh, narcissism even in people that have done a lot of psychedelics. So that it's it's not just taking the drugs, it's taking them in therapeutic settings, dealing with your shadows that's really necessary. So here I will agree with you that um, sometimes we look at some people and like, Man, uh, <laughs> have they really done all that many psychedelics? How come it didn't work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair comment. Um, fortunately, we're, we're a little bit limited no, on time, no, and we didn't get no. too into uh, how you went from the inspiration to the the build out of maps, which was a, maybe maybe we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, I, I would be glad, Ronan. I'd be glad to come back and, and do another talk. 
After the first part of my conversation with Rick, three key things stood out to me. First, never forget to have fun. Even when you have a clear goal and a stated mission that you're fully committed to, it's important to stop and have fun along the way. Despite being the poster child for the FDA approval of MDMA, which is a cold, sober, and strict process, Rick is still unabashed and open about his ongoing psychedelic use for both therapeutic and recreational purposes. Tom Robbins once said, when it comes to perpetuating how to make love stay, I got no advice, but here are the two most important things I know. Everything is a part of it, and it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And by that I mean we're all connected, to nature, to history, to evolution. Everything is part of a greater whole. We're individuals in terms of life and death, but at the same time, part of an enormous eternal network. And as Rick so aptly notes, if we as individuals are able to feel our own connectedness, it becomes harder to be dehumanizing. It becomes harder to hate. And most importantly, it becomes easier to love and have compassion. Finally, I believe in political solutions to political problems, but man's primary problems aren't political, they're philosophical. Until we can solve our philosophical problems, then we're condemned to solve the political problems over and over and over again. Psychedelics have the power to break through these cycles of generational trauma and failure. By taking a step forward, we are able to move through it, change old patterns, become more spiritual, and ultimately build a new base for humanity. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy and produced by Conrad Page. Our researcher is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Rick Doblin for joining me today. To learn more about what MAPS is up to, be sure to check out maps.org. Finally, subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm.